Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Sainsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Kat Magulik from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Kat. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. Kat, you're a paleontologist, right? Correct. Yep. So you really like fossils? Yes, always have. Ever since I was a little kid, I was always obsessed with them. Were you? Did you like go on like school trip uh, bone digs? I don't know. Like, what do you what do you do to get that to get that fix? Yeah, I mean, I definitely did get a chance to go on digs as a kid. I was very lucky. Um, I have family in Montana, and that's you know a hot spot for dinosaur fossil digs. So I got a chance to to witness a couple of those and that was always really exciting and yeah as a kid I was you know obsessed with dinosaurs could name all of them you know tell you everything about them definitely can't do that anymore because now I study mammals so that's my wheelhouse currently oh so you don't study dinosaurs um nope yeah what kind of mammal so you're studying kind of recent relatively history earth earth history Definitely compared to the rest of my lab who, you know, is studying things like, you know, tens or, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, I study things that are relatively recent. So most of my research takes place in the last 10 million years, which yeah, in terms of paleontology is very recent. Yeah. And are you studying a particular question? What are you looking at with these mammals? Yeah, so I studied the Great American Biotic Interchange, also known as GABI, so G-A-B-I. And basically, this is a migration event between North and South America that peaks about two and a half million years ago um, when the Isthmus of Panama is sort of up out of the ocean and uh, mammals and also, uh, you know, a bunch of other different groups of animals are able to go back and forth between North and South America. So like, this is how we end up with the armadillo in North America from that exchange. This is how we get opossums here in North America, things like that. Okay, so you're saying that um, there's at some point uh, there was this collision basically of North America and South America, or at least there was a land bridge that appeared that is still here today, the Panama uh, Isthmus. Exactly. Um, yeah. So how did that happen? Why, why did that happen at the time it happened? Yeah, so that's like a, a real hot button issue in the field right now. So um, it's, it's kind of a simplification, but basically you're right, there's a collision, but the, the faults and things around there are actually super complex. And I'm, I don't have that much background in geology, so I won't get too much into that. But Uh, Yeah, so basically some people say that the isthmus is coming out around 20 million years ago. Some people say, no, it only came out around 2.5 when we see this migration in mammals. Um, But I think the answer is a little bit probably more nuanced than that. So I think the evidence really points to that there were islands and things like coming in and out of the water over time, allowing some slower migration before we hit the peak two and a half million years ago. And then two and a half million years ago is probably when we have, you know, the actual official land bridge, if you want to call it that, where it's continuous land across and then things could migrate more easily. Okay. And so mammals and other animals you were saying just kind of saw this happen and they were like, oh, I can 
go over there? Like what, what drives, like what, what happened? I guess there's no way to know that because we haven't really seen continents colliding or anything in our time as a sentient species. But like, do you have any ideas of like what it was like when this first happened? Yeah, so that's also a great point and something that I really try to do in my research is not to sort of personify these animals and think that, you know, they actively wanted to get to the other continent because, you know, of course, they don't have concepts of continent. But, um, you know, they probably just saw that there was all this new available habitat that they could, you know, gather resources from and were able to go into that. Um, so, yeah, it probably wasn't any sort of conscious decision, I think, but uh, yeah, they were seeing that that things were available and were able to to go there. And so, like, what happened? I guess you are more interested in kind of less the, you know, I you don't so much study how the land bridge developed or anything like that, but you kind of study, I guess, the interactions between mm -hmm. the animals once this uh, was able, once the land bridge was there and they were able to move. Yeah, so uh, my research is focused sort of on filters uh, to this migration. So why are some groups of animals going across this land bridge and some aren't? Because um, we definitely have groups that, you know, are staying in the same place or barely moving at all during this time. So the idea was sort of first uh, postulated by George Gaylord Simpson in the 1950s. He wrote this paper and said there was some sort of uh, Central American filter um, that's occurring during this interchange. And he he said it was probably likely some sort of environmental variable, but he didn't really go into it more than that. Uh, and so I'm really interested in seeing what this filter was. So I think it could potentially be environmentally related. So, you know, parts of the, the habitats that, you know, weren't useful to certain animals or like that wasn't part of their niche that they couldn't live in. Um, and I think like you mentioned a second ago, like some of it could have also been like competition from other mammals and interactions. So, um, you know, it's really definitely, I think, a multifaceted problem or, or issue, I think. Yeah, yeah. You talk about the environment. Yeah, like Panama, right? It's really hard to actually move. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like pretty challenging terrain there. Um, so I guess like a lot of the bigger things that we see in North America just had no chance of getting down to South America, maybe? So that's the surprising thing is that so many of them did. Oh. Uh, really, the especially migrants from North America do really well in South America. So not only are many of them able to get there, but they actually diversify really well when they get to South America. Uh, conversely, the South American migrants in North America, you know, are kind of seen to, to not do quite as well. There aren't as many of them that get to North America and they don't diversify quite as much. But in terms of the like base pool of migrants, there's actually pretty proportional amounts of, of mammals at least going both ways. It's just that the, the pool of mammals in South America at the time is a little bit smaller than in North America. Oh, is there any reason for that? So people think uh, that this is because uh, North America is still pretty connected to other continents um, during the Cenozoic. So the last 66 million years since the, the dinosaurs went extinct. Um, so for example, North America has been connected to Eurasia over that time and has migrants from there. So there's, there's just sort of like a bigger pool. And that was actually the initial hypothesis for why North American migrants to South America sort of quote unquote win 
the uh, the migration in terms of you know diversifying more in South America is that they were just better suited to competing against new arrivals and migrants in the area. Right. Did um, you talk about diversification? Is that kind mm -hmm. of like a, a metric that you use as kind of like successful um, colonization in this exchange? Yeah, so that like historically is what people are looking at for, yeah, the so the quote unquote success and failure of the interchange, which is definitely a moniker I think in my research, you know, I'm hesitant to, to use because you know, what is really success and failure when you're an animal? Um, but- yeah, I was just wondering, cause you know, you, the, the uh, species that came up to North America, right? Mm -hmm. Of like armadillos and, uh, um, opossums, right? Which seem like, you know, to be doing fine, but there's just like kind of the, a couple of species, right? They, they, they're not very diverse, but they seem to be doing really well, the ones that are here, right? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, there's actually, I think, a recent paper arguing that it's not the increase of diversification of migrants as what makes them do well, but sort of like the lack of extinction in migrants that makes them do well. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely a topic that people are are continuing to look at and study. Interesting. Okay. Um, so this you kind of like talked about the broad strokes of this question. Um, and so like what more specifically are you looking at within this whole Great American Biota Exchange? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my two sort of areas that I'm focusing on is I'm sort of looking at uh, environmental variables. Um, and so that's where I'm looking at available niche space by using ecological niche modeling um, to address that. And then I'm also looking at biological attributes of the migrants. Um, so for example, something interesting that identified or that I was able to sort of uh, pinpoint is that a lot of the migrants that are coming into North America uh, have some sort of like body protection. So like armadillos are an example, um, but there are lots of also extinct representatives of sort of body protection. So like glyptodonts are very similar to armadillos. They're a lot bigger and rounder, but they also have that body plating. There are a lot of giant ground sloths that come up to North America from South America. Um, and a really interesting thing is that some of these groups of ground sloths actually have little dermal ossicles um, all across their body that sort of like function as like a defense mechanism or, you know, some something of the sort. Cool. So what happened? What happened to those animals? They're not around anymore. Right? Yeah, so uh, those animals are extinct. And there's a lot of debate also on that topic where was it overhunting from humans or climate change or both um, that, that are causing them to, to go extinct. Okay. Um, and then so why do you think they need these? Or why is this armor important? Yeah, so I think it could have to do with competition and predation um, that animals that have more armor or more defense mechanisms uh, against other other competitors or predators are maybe more likely to just like be successful in gathering resources that they need to survive. But animals that um, were native to North America and then that also went down to South America, they, you're saying they tended not to have as much armor 
as many. Yeah. So this is a, a definitely a more unique thing that is seen in the South American migrants to North America. Um, the, the North American migrants, we don't really see that. Uh, and that could be because during this time that the interchange is occurring, there's a lot of climate change occurring. So a hypothesis that's been put forward as to sort of why there are more North American migrants going south is that they just had more continuous habitat, um, which is hopefully something I can pinpoint with my niche modeling. So for example, a lot of people think that, you know, because there was this changing environment from forests to grasslands, that animals who are sort of grassland adapted had a more continuous sort of corridor through the area, whereas animals maybe in South America who were forest adapted no longer had any sort of corridor and so were in like maybe a little pocket and weren't able to migrate through the land that was now in Central America. Okay. So why is the armor important then for the South American animals? Yeah, so it, it seems like potentially, um, you know, this is a part of my my work that I'm, you know, actively still working on, but it seems like it could be sort of like that competitive edge that they needed um, to allow them to, you know, outcompete others and, you know, not get potated on to go to go north, whereas the North Americans going south already sort of like had the edge and an easier time doing it. Is there kind of evidence that maybe the North American animals going south, like, did really well in the parts of South America that matched, um, you know, like, had that grassland environment, but were, weren't able to get as much of a foothold in, like, the kind of forested areas? Yeah, so that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out with my dissertation. So I'm using uh, something called ecological niche modeling, which is also known as species distribution modeling. Uh, so basically, um, this can be applied to like a variety of uh, examples. So I'm using it in this, you know, paleontological case, but, you know, people have used it for conservation, you know, ecology, evolution, all sorts of things it applies to. Um, but basically what the niche modeling does is you take uh, climatic variables. So for us paleontologists, we get that from paleoclimate modeling. Uh, and then you also take uh, the occurrence data for whatever uh, taxon you're interested in. So, you know, in this case, it's going to be fossil occurrences for, for my work. Uh, and then you put them into the models. There are various different types of, of models that you can use. Um, I'm using one called maximum entropy. And you, you put this data in and basically it says, based on the overlap between fossil localities and paleoclimate data, where do we think is the suitable habitat for this taxon? So um, for the paleoclimate models, uh, how, where do those come from? Like how do people have those models? <laughs> Yeah, so thankfully, um, there, there are people who just, you know, spend their entire career making paleoclimate models because it, they're very difficult and complex. Um, but there are various different types, but usually what you see um, is coupled like atmosphere ocean circulation models. Um, so they take into account, you know, atmospheric conditions and how the atmosphere acts and then also, you know, sort of like ocean currents and things like that. Um, and it's able to, you know, sort of model things like temperature, precipitation, things like that, all this important data that I need to run these niche models. Um, 
which I can then, you know, extract out and, and put into the model. And they're, um, like, it's based on the fact that land masses were like kind of in different places. Like what's, mm -hmm. uh, what's going into like why a paleoclimate model would be different than a climate model of today? Yeah, so it like has different positions of the land masses, um, you know, things like that. Like, you know, part of them, you know, can figure out like how much like ice sheets are available and things like that um, is, yeah, a very interesting process. Some of them also use things like uh, foraminifera fossils from the ocean as sort of like a proxy for you know temperature and things like that some of them use plant pollen fossils as sort of figuring out what the climate environment would have been like in certain places it's it's a really interesting field cool um, and then so you use that in uh conjunction with occurrence of fossils um and so that i guess you're there are a bunch of databases where everybody who studies fossils just like uploads all the information they have about fossils yeah so we do have a lot of really useful databases uh the problem that i've been running into in my research is that the databases are really well represented when we have north american fauna um, but for South American fauna, it's not necessarily as well represented just because people haven't had the chance to really input it in, or maybe the literature is in Spanish. Um, so people who are uh, English speaking cannot, you know, read the literature and then input it into the database. Because, uh, you know, it's sort of like a group effort uh, by the scientific community to be putting occurrences into this database. Uh, and then the other thing is that some databases only will input information that's in a published paper. So for example, if we have a lot of museum specimens of this fossil, then those aren't gonna be represented in the database. Um, so it's definitely, you know, going through and making sure that I have uh, a good representation outside of the database as well, but the database is a great start. So do any, is all of your research based on like fossils that have been described previously in museums and papers and things like that, or are you, you don't do any collection for your own research, do you? No, I don't personally do any collection that's like going into my research. Um, you know, I have had the chance to go on some some digs for my my colleagues' work, but not for mine. Cool. So you talked about like this idea of having the animals or being able to say, you know, where the animals are living, right? Like that's part of the this question that you're asking. Um, do the fossils come with that information or are you trying to use like the climate model to like say, okay, you found this animal in this place. So it was probably in this kind of environment. I guess, how do you know kind of where these animals were living? Yeah, so that's where the climate model comes in is, is the model sort of overlays the climate model with the occurrence data and says, okay, so this is occurring, you know, maybe, in a really hot climate that's really dry. And so if that holds true for the rest of the specimens of the group that I'm looking at, then maybe the model will say, okay, the most suitable habitat is likely going to be this hot, dry climate. There's no way to, I guess, guess look in the fossil record and kind of get an idea of just based on like, I don't know, things that you find around the fossil about like what kind of environment. Do you ever run into situations like that where you can kind of get that idea? So I don't 
specifically use it in the modeling, but that's definitely a thing that people do. There's a lot of research, especially in Central America on um, paleontology or the study of fossil pollen. And that can give you a wealth of information about the environment that you're working in. So there's a, a lot of like for specific sites, there's a lot of papers that might describe what that environment is. But unfortunately, then I can't, you know, apply it to the rest of my occurrences. Um, but it, it's definitely still very useful and interesting data. Um, I mean, the other thing I can say about niche modeling is that basically what it's telling you about is the fundamental niche of an organism. So it's not really getting at the realized niche um, specifically just because, you know, the fundamental niche is like all the possible area where an organism could be. And then the realized niche is where they could like are actually uh, inhabiting that that space. And so what our models are telling us are the like, you know, more general area. Um, and it's more measured in habitat suitability. So just because, you know, my model says that like, oh, this is the area where a animal could possibly be, but doesn't mean, you know, that's going to be the exact species range of what that mammal was during that time. Um, so, so it's more of an idea. And what, what I hope it will show me is that, you know, if I'm seeing a South American mammal that stays in South America, what I expect the niche model is going to show me is that they only have available niche space in South America, and maybe it extends into North America, but it's not connected by a corridor. So there was no way for them to like get there. And conversely, if I see, you know, a North American animal that does really well in South America, I would expect my niche model to say there is habitat that's suitable for them all through uh, the Central American corridor into South America. So uh, just going back to that, sorry, can you just say some, uh, just explain fundamental niche and realized niche um, just uh, again? Yeah, of course. Uh, so the fundamental niche is basically the, you know, sort of abiotic area where a species is able to live. So these are the conditions that a species is able to live in, and this is where they can possibly live. And then you get the realized niche when things come in like, you know, competitive exclusion that are sort of making that niche space even smaller. Um, so that is, for example, something that I'm not able to tell with my niche models is, was there competition between different species that is potentially making this habitat that's suitable into an actually smaller realized niche. Yeah. So I guess if it's been able to successfully uh, colonize the other continent, then even if it's facing like pretty severe competition, there must have been some instances that you'll see in the fossil record. Like it would be kind of um, almost impossible for it to have made it to um, North America without at least leaving some fossil trace in the um, bridge. So that's actually a great point is that that's actually a very undersampled place um, in terms of the fossil record, just because we don't have um, a lot of, you know, field work from that area. And also just because, you know, a lot of it is going to be like rainforest area, which is, you know, not really the area that paleontologists are looking to do a dig in. Um, and so there's actually, you know, definitely an effort now um, by various groups, including, you know, uh, 
Dr. Jack Sang here in the Department of Integrative Biology uh, to actually get data. He's specifically looking at Mexico um, to to sort of see, you know, hopefully a more clear picture through through the actual fossil record of what's sort of happening in this migration. Because yeah, definitely Central America is kind of a gap in a lot of in a lot of our occurrence data. This is like really cool, interesting questions. Uh, would you say that most of your time when you're like doing research is kind of just sitting at a computer and like trying to make models work? Is that like, that's kind of like what I get from what you've been saying? Exactly, yeah, especially like right now, that's what I'm in the midst of working on. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's, you know, it's good to take a step back and, you know, think about things in a broader context because yeah when you're just coding and getting these errors it can sometimes be a little bit frustrating do you do any like um non-computer work like any wet lab stuff or anything like that no not for me um when so i'm sort of you know starting off right now in the environmental aspect working on the modeling um when it gets more to the uh sort of biological attributes like we were talking about with the armor and things like that I might have more of an opportunity to go look at museum specimens uh but at this point it's pretty computer heavy is that fun for you do you like do you enjoy working on the computer or do you kind of wish you had more chances to um you know get out and like or get into the lab and do things so it's it's definitely been challenging during the pandemic uh, when everything is computer work. I mean, I know I'm very lucky in that, you know, nothing in my research has been like halted or, or interrupted in that sense. But, you know, just sort of sitting at my desk all day, staring at a screen can sometimes get to you. Um, so I, I definitely, you know, pre-pandemic uh, was trying to get involved in other people's field work just because I think it's a really valuable skill uh, to have. Uh, as a paleontologist um, and, you know, just as someone who's like interested in what my colleagues are doing. Yeah. So what are paleontology field trips that you have been on like? Yeah. So, you know, it's really cool to be out in nature. Um, so one field trip that I've gotten to go on is with my lab mate, Tanner Frank. Uh, he's been doing some research in Nevada on stickleback fish fossils. Uh, and so that's a lot of fun to, to go out there. It's actually in a, in a big diatomite quarry because that's the type of rock that the fish are found in is diatomite. Um, and it, you know, that's really intense because there are no trees around. It's really hot. The sun is like reflecting off of everything, very blinding, but it's also a lot of fun, you know, just sort of the camaraderie that you have being out in the field with other people, you know, talking, people are digging, people are packing up fossils, uh, people are, you know, taking pictures of the sediment. And, and you also get to see, you know, lots of cool extant wildlife. Like, you know, you'll see lizards and snakes and bugs and all sorts of things. So uh, it's, it's a really nice atmosphere. So, you know, we've talked a lot about your research, uh, what you do. Um, is there anything else that, um, you know, really seems like vital to the career you do in science that you, that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, I think the thing I really like about what I do is that, you know, I, it's called paleontology, it's called paleobiology, it's called paleoecology, you know, whatever you want to call it. But I think, you know, the really thing that I get excited about a lot is that they're paleontologists doing things that, you know, have such really interesting implications for our lives in the present, um, for climate change, for conservation. And I think that's, you know, one of my favorite things about being a paleontologist is that, 
even though, you know, sometimes when you're up close in the nitty gritty, it can seem like, oh, you know, why am I doing this? Who cares? Like, I think it really is interesting and applicable data and information that we're looking at. Yeah, for sure. Do you see any of those um, important takeaways from the research that you're doing on this um, exchange, this biota exchange? So I definitely hope so. So I think it could have a lot of implications for sort of, you know, how animals are migrating now in this time of climate change, um, because it was also a time of climate change while this uh, interchange was happening. So I think it could definitely, you know, give us more information about how potentially exchanges are gonna occur as the climate changes. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Like the paleontology, um, you know, it's so much, it's hard to like study it without knowing what's going on in the world to have a reference point. So it's like, they kind of feed off of each other, I guess, right? Like, Definitely. It, you know, this climate change now kind of helps you to study your past question, but also the question in the past or the things you see from the past can help you um, model the future. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think they're super interconnected. And, you know, whether you realize that as or not, like as humans, we're constantly making comparisons between things. So, yeah, it's definitely something that we do a lot as paleontologists is, is think about how things are related across time. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we're running out of time on the interview. Um, usually at the end of the interview, we give our chan a chance for our guests to address the audience on any issues that they'd like to leave the audience with, things that might have come up or things that we didn't get to. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? Yeah, I would say don't be afraid to be interdisciplinary or ask questions about different areas or think about how things are interconnected. Uh, in my undergrad, I got degrees in zoology and history at the same time. Um, and I think they were both equally useful to me now in my PhD. So I think it's really important to just keep asking questions about everything because it's all going to be useful and interrelated. Today, we've been speaking with Kat McGullick from the Department of Integrative Biology. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Kat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.